Good to have everybody out today. Some of our college students are back home, and then some of our Karen students have left to go back to their homes. So I want to welcome those of you that are visiting, or college students that are back home. Welcome back home. This morning, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the Gospel of John chapter 1. We're going to move away for the next two weeks from our series in Romans and take some time this morning to do a message as we celebrate Christ, the heart of Christmas. As I think about Christmas over the years, I, I think there's so many things that, that I love about the coming of Christ. After I became a Christian, it became so meaningful, but think about light for a moment. How, I mean, we got Christmas lights. Most of our Christmas cards always have some sort of a bright light. Even if, when it's baby Jesus, there's, there's light emanating out. And this whole theme of light often is associated with the glory of God. When the angels appeared, remember it says there was a great light, and then they said glory to God in the highest. As you read the Bible, one of the things that you'll begin to see is that the glory of God is often revealed through a manifestation of bright light, the presence of God. The, 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 the people of the uh, scriptures in the Old Testament would call it the Shekinah glory of God. So where God was, there was this bright light. And so oftentimes when we see a picture of the, the manger scene, when we see light shining out of it, that's probably not what happened, but it's trying to illustrate to us this truth that this baby is manifesting the glorious presence of God. And for that reason, I want us to look this morning in the Gospel of John. But before we do that, I want to remind you that as we as Americans are entering into this wonderful, blessed time for many of us. Now, I realize some of you, this is a really sad time. You're depressed. You've lost loved ones. You're going through personal problems. So it's not all, you know, fun and games and toys and celebration. But big picture in America, we have a, a very affluent and comfortable place in this world. We're not persecuted. While there is some uncertainty about terrorists and so forth, for the most part, we're really an enigma when it comes to being Christians because we are not persecuted. I don't know how many of you had the opportunity this week to see on 2020, there was a special about a group of believers in Iraq who had been displaced from their home city. There was about 500 of them that were displaced by ISIS and threatened with death. And so they, they quickly fled to this nearby town where there was a a Christian church there that took these 500-some, uh, you know, displaced refugees in and persecuted. ISIS is nearby. And so Christians in America had been praying and getting a burden to try to do something for them. And I, I want to remind you to continue to do that. But Glenn Beck, though I, I don't agree with a lot of what Glenn Beck says, he, he got a burden to try to help some of these persecuted Christians. So he started... Uh, asking to start a foundation, raise money, and he raised like $14 million. And so he, he, he found a Christian couple in Florida who he hired to, to try this daring rescue, and that was to, to get a hundred and some refugee Christians from Iraq and to move them somewhere where they're safe permanently. Now, it was a, it's a fascinating story, and you can still watch it. It's on demand. It's on ABC 2020. I think it was Thursday night. But one of the things that they did is they, they contacted 12 countries, and not a single country was willing to take them 
until they came to, of all countries, Slovakia. Slovakia was willing to relocate these 120 or 160 people. And so it's a fascinating story seeing how they had to rent a charter jet. I mean, the whole story is profound. But to think of the fact that right now on planet Earth, there are a whole lot of Christians that are fearful for their lives. They don't even know whether they're going to make it till tomorrow. When they pray, give us this day our daily bread, they mean that in a way that we'll never probably understand. So it's really important as we, as we enter into the holidays too, to recognize that Christ came into the world. He didn't come to America. He came to this world. And this world is, is a dark place. It's a place where Christianity is unwelcome. And we're going to see that this morning. So we're told in the book of Hebrews, remember those who are in prison as though we're in prison with them. And so let's take a moment this morning as we worship our Lord and we praise God to think about the gospel as it's going out to all the nations and to think about those who are, are, they're not worried about toys and tots and treats, they're just worried about staying alive. And let's remember them in prayer and thank God for his grace and pray for them to, if necessary, love not their lives unto death and to worship and glorify the Lamb, even as martyrs, knowing that there's a wonderful life to come. But certainly we don't want to become complacent, lukewarm American Christians who feel like we have no need when in fact Jesus says of Christians like that, you, you make me sick, you're lukewarm. And so let's, let's bow together and worship and pray for them. Father, as we enter into the Christmas season, we thank you so much that Jesus came into this world. We are so blessed that he is the light of the world, that he came into a dark and fallen world that we might have salvation. But Lord, we know that this world hates Christianity. They hate Christ. And for that reason, many of our brothers and, and sisters in the Lord are, are being persecuted. They're suffering. They're, they're in fear. And, and yet, Lord, you have not abandoned them. So we pray, Lord, for Christians that are being persecuted all over the world, in China and North Korea, in the Muslim world, in places that we don't even know where Christians are losing their lives daily. Would you just encourage them? May we not just be complacent and think about ourselves and our little tree and our fireplace, but may we remember the urgency of the gospel. And as we worship Jesus, may we have a burden that the light of the gospel goes into all the world and that we make disciples here in Trenton, but also that disciples are being made all over the world. So, Father, we pray for your blessing on them, your encouragement. Thank you, Father, that one thing they can't steal. Satan cannot touch our souls. And we thank you that you keep us unto the end. So may they be willing to confess Christ even unto death if they're called to that. And may we, as Christians, be revived in America to stand against this dark and evil world and to realize that the world did not receive Christ, and they still don't. But those who do receive him have eternal life and are called to shine as a light. And we ask for your blessing on your word now and that you will transform us in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning as we look at the Gospel of John, you know, every Christmas it's always so fun. I try to go back over and read the Christmas stories in Matthew, Mark, or Matthew and Luke rather, just to kind of rehearse all of the narratives that we know about. But, you know, it's like a, your favorite song on the radio. You don't go, oh, I already heard it, I turn it off. You want to hear it again. You want to replay it. And so this, this year I thought rather than selecting a, a narrative, maybe the announcement to Mary or or something, that we would do the prologue of the Gospel of John, because John is such a profound uh, theologian who, who 
looks at Christ from just a different angle. You know, we have the four Gospels, and we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptics because they tell the story in a very similar way. They're seen together, but John didn't probably write till quite a bit after Matthew, Mark, and Luke was written. So he, he was most likely familiar with the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but probably they were written in the 50s or 60s. He comes along in most likely in the 90s. So, so he's had 60 years to think back about his time with Christ on earth. And under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he decides that he's going to write the Gospel of John. And he's unashamedly clear in why he wrote the book. He says at the end of the book, Jesus did many other signs that aren't written in these books, but he says, I wrote this book so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, but that he's the Son of God, that he's divine. And when you believe, you'll have eternal life in his name. And I happen to be uniquely blessed as one of the ones, and I actually know this to be true about uh, one of our pastors, Jonathan Master, his father as well. Both of us were saved reading the Gospel of John. And years ago, people would often, instead of passing out tracts, you can get little booklets of the Gospel of John and just give them out as an evangelistic message. In fact, those of you that are trying to share Christ with your friends, I would definitely encourage you if they're they're starting to read the Bible, encourage them to start with the Gospel of John, even though that might seem strange. I thought you start in the beginning. But I would encourage you to turn them to John because John, like no other book of the, the Bible, mentions believing in Christ 96 times. Now, it is important that we understand what it means to believe, but nevertheless, John unashamedly says, I want to hold Christ out there so that you can be saved, that you can have eternal life. And so John decides to weigh in on the Christmas story, but from a very different angle. The Gospel of John is unique in a number of ways. John selected seven signs that Jesus did, that five of these signs that are, that are mentioned are not mentioned in the other Gospels. But he chooses these seven signs to reveal who Christ is, and he shows us in the first 12 chapters this summary, that Christ came into the world and the world didn't receive him. So Jesus begins to, to do miracles. He turns water into wine. He raises the nobleman's son and, and heals the blind man and raises Lazarus. And we see these stories of Jesus, and there's this mounting division. There's a, a, a widespread opposition and hostility toward him. But each time John tells another miracle, it says some believed in him. And so there's this growing sense that among the masses who reject Christ, Many come to know him and believe on account of the signs. But by the end of the gospel of John chapter 12, there's this sense that the opposition is completed. The, John chapter 12 says, in spite of all of these signs, yet they still didn't believe in him. And so sometimes we call the first 12 chapters of John the book of signs. And then in chapters 13 through 17, Jesus withdraws from the multitude in the night before he's crucified he has this lengthy speech with his disciples in which he announces to them that the glory of God is going to be manifested in his death and he's going away. And so to model the fact that he wants them to continue to love and serve one another, he washes their feet on that Thursday evening before his crucifixion. And then he begins to tell them that he's going to die. He tells them that he's going to go away and they can't come with him and they're blown away because they've just spent three and a half years with him. And they're confused. Where are you going? And what do you mean we can't go with you? And so Jesus says, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me. He says, I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And then I'm going to come again and receive you. But actually, it's to your advantage. 
He says, it's actually a good thing that I go away because after I go away, I'm going to send the Spirit of God and He's going to come and He'll indwell you and He'll comfort you and He'll help you because you're going to be on a mission to testify about me. But the Holy Spirit, He's going to come into your life and He's going to bear witness and He's going to testify and He's going to help you to point people to me because He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And He says, so you need to know now that you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated. People are going to try to kill you and think they're doing God a favor. But don't be discouraged. I've overcome the world. And then he leaves that room, and after having communion, he offers up this beautiful prayer in John 17 for them. And then John selects certain events that that culminate in the crucifixion and resurrection, and then the famous story of doubting Thomas. Remember, Thomas says, ah, unless I see it, I don't believe. And Jesus mercifully reveals himself, and Thomas goes, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Tom, you, you believe because you see me? He says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And so as we enter into the Gospel of John, the first 18 verses are often called the prologue or the preamble, or as D.A. Carson says, it's the vestibule into the book. So what we're going to look at this morning is so profound. There's such deep theological mystery in it. But it's really cool because in essence, Everything we read in this first little section is is unfolded and unpacked throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. So I want to encourage you to read the Gospel of John sometime over the break just to to behold the glory of Jesus as it's revealed in the Gospel of John. I think if I had to summarize the theme of John in one sentence, it would be something like this. Jesus is the divine Son of God who came to reveal God so that all who believe in Him will have life through his name. So John wants to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, but rather than starting with his birth in the manger or his genealogy or, or the, the birth of John the Baptist, John says, I want to go way back. I want to go way back before that to eternity past. And so look with me in the first two verses. He says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And so John starts right off by throwing his, his idea in here. He says, I'm going to give Jesus a name. I'm not going to call him Messiah. I'm going to call him here the Word. And that in itself is really, really deep and, and interesting. And, and people have, have gone on and on trying to figure out why, what inspired, what moved John to call Jesus the Word. Some people look back to the Old Testament particularly to Proverbs chapter 8, where the concept of wisdom is personified. Wisdom in Proverbs 8 actually becomes a person. It's a woman. Wisdom says, I was with God in the beginning. I was rejoicing. I was there helping him at creation. And so some, some sort of see this personification of Jesus in wisdom related to Proverbs chapter 8, sort of a, a Hebrew slant. Others look at this and they say, no, no, the reason he chose the word, this Greek word logos, is because that was a very important term in Greek philosophy at the time. The philosophers were all talking about the divine logos. And while that's possible, I like what D.A. Carson said. He said, you know, I think probably what, what, what John's doing is he's taking a concept that's familiar to Jews and Greeks, but he's going to shape it for his own purposes, And so basically, when you you ask yourself, why is Jesus called the Word? My personal opinion is that the the purpose of words is to reveal. 
We communicate. We express ourselves through words. And it seems to me that one of the main emphases of the Gospel of John is that Jesus came to reveal God. So, for example, down in verse 18, it says, No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son has explained Him. Later on in the Gospel of John, they're like, Jesus, will you show us the Father? And He goes, I already have. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So Jesus, the divine word, has come to reveal and explain God to us. But notice that John's, he's not going to be a lightweight here. Christianity is not, as C.S. Lewis says, little boy's religion. There's a depth to it because John's unashamed to, to bring in Trinitarian truth here. He says, the word was with God. So, so, wait a minute. Okay, so Jesus is the word. He's with God, but yet he says the word was God. And interestingly, the word with here is a preposition in the New Testament that most often is translated towards, like directional, like he went towards, he, or, or this one was towards. And so some theologians see here an expression of the relationship that Jesus had with the Father. The word was towards God. There's this intimacy of two people that really like each other. And while that's true, in fact, Jesus prayed in John 17 that the world would know the love and unity that the Father and Son have. I don't think that's what he meant here. In fact, this same word is used when it says, are not Jesus' brothers and sisters with us? And you certainly wouldn't translate it there. Are they not towards us? So all I want you to see here is that John's showing is that while Jesus is God, there's a distinctness. He is God, but he's also with God. And you're going, wait a minute, that, how can he be God, but he's also with God? And just as a quick side note here, it's very important that you as a Christian understand that believing that Jesus is God is essential. That is not like a, a periphery thing in Christianity. You're not a Christian if you do not acknowledge, believe, and trust that Jesus Christ is eternally God, that he's divine. In fact, you can't become saved. The Bible says you must confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. John says it this way in John chapter 20. You must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so the reason why this becomes important is because many of us have friends, family members, or certainly they're going to knock on your door, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that Jesus is God. In fact, their translation here says the word was a God, and it has it in small g. And so I want to prepare you for this because many of you will engage with them. And the first thing that they're probably going to say is, well, in the Greek, it should be translated as a God. Now, let me just walk you through an easy way to, to, to work with this. Number one, ask them, are you familiar? Do you read Greek? 99% of them are going to say no. And that's when you'll say, neither do I. So we're sort of at a stalemate there. However, it's very, very clear that people who do read Greek have written profusely indicating that this verse should be translated God, deity. So I'm not going to get into all of the background of the Greek article, but the point is when they say, oh, in the Greek it should be, it would be safe to say they're wrong. But you can read, if you want to, you can look up articles about that. But the point is, John's saying Jesus is God. Now, we recognize, if you've had Christian teaching, that the doctrine of the Trinity is a mystery. Somebody once said, if I try to understand the Trinity, I'll lose my mind. But if I deny the Trinity, I'll lose my soul. So the scriptures tell us that there is only one God. 
That's clear. Deuteronomy 6. There's only one God. There's not three gods. But somehow this one God exists in three equal and eternal persons. These persons are, are the same in their nature, but they're distinct in their roles. And so right from the beginning, John calls Jesus the Word who's with God, who is God, who was in the beginning with God. And then he decides that he wants to also remind us that Christ, as Christmas comes along, is not only God who's with the Father, but he's also our creator. Look at verse 3. And I think John's thinking back here to Genesis 1. When you read Genesis 1, in the beginning was the Word, we just picture God there. But now we learn that the mediating agent of creation is not the Father, Son, and Spirit, but it's Jesus. So the scriptures tell us that this Jesus, the Word, all things came into being through Him. Not through evolution, not through time and chance, but through the creative, spoken, authoritative power of Jesus Christ. And just in case we don't know what that means, he says, and apart from Him, nothing, visible or invisible, has ever come into being. And this was an apostolic teaching. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Colossians 1. He said, all things visible and visible have been created through him and for him. The author of Hebrews tells us that God brought all things to existence through his son Jesus. So Jesus, in the beginning when God was speaking, he was the mediating agent, the divine person of the triune God who created all of us, which basically says this, every one of us and all that's in creation Somewhere has a little label on it that says, made by Jesus Christ. And if you open up the Emmanuel, it's also going to say, made for Jesus Christ. Even though there's a whole lot of creatures down here that are rebelling against that. In fact, one time I was in a Bible study in which a young lady, after being taught this verse, she looks up in tears because she knew the gospel and she starts to weep. And she goes, wait a minute. If Jesus Christ made me, then that means I belong to him. And if I belong to him, then that means I should surrender to him and and serve him. And I have been doing that. And that girl was gloriously converted that day of all things from this verse. All things came into being through him. John says, in Christ was life, verse 4, and the life was the light of men. Now, again, there's there's a profoundness to this. What? What do you mean that in Jesus Christ was life? What is life? Right? He may here be speaking of eternal life. God himself is, is the source of all life. So when he shaped Adam out of the clay and he formed him out of the dust of the ground, the Bible says he breathed into him the breath of life and man became a living soul. And so John begins to indicate to us that Jesus is the source not only of physical life but more importantly of eternal life. This life that Adam forfeited by his rebellion. And then he says this, the life was the light of men. Now, wait a minute. So so Jesus has this this life-giving force that he's put into all of the people who are alive on earth. In what way is it the light of men? Well, I think what he's going to teach us is that all mankind has a, a sense that there's a God out there who has given them life. Even though they suppress it, even though they deny it. We'll read later. He was the one who came into the world and enlightens every man. But then John throws down for us a very, very interesting sort of summary of the book. Because he says in verse 5, look at at this verse. I love this verse. Think about Christmas. 
and the light shines in the darkness, right? So when Jesus Christ gets off the throne of glory in heaven, he comes down silently into the womb of Mary. Here he is, the light coming into the world, and he shines in the darkness. And we have all these images of light. We have the star over the house. We have the angels with a bright light saying, glory to God in the highest. And yet darkness here is going to take on a moral connotation. You see, the word darkness has two meanings. It often is a metaphor for ignorance. So we'll say things like this. Hey, man, don't leave me in the dark. Why am I the last one to know? But darkness also has a moral essence behind it, and that's when the Bible talks about darkness in relation to sin. So, for example, we'll say, you know, something about that guy, I think he has a dark side. And so when the Bible says the light shines in darkness, what we're learning is that Jesus Christ comes into this world who's both ignorant but evil, lacking revelation but in full-scale rebellion. And so when Jesus comes at Christmas and he's born in this little uh, manger and he's laid there, the Bible says the darkness, this evil world, did not comprehend it. Now, you certainly don't need to learn Greek to understand the Bible. But there are times that looking up the original words in the New Testament, you don't have to be a Greek scholar. There's so many tools out there that you can use now. We'll shed some light that maybe you wouldn't see. So this word translated comprehend has two meanings. Lots of words have more than one meaning, like the word trunk, right? It can mean a tree trunk, alpha trunk. So this word could be translated comprehend in the sense of understanding, but it also could be translated overcome, overpower. It's a strong term, almost like of tackling someone. So, so what did John mean when he says Jesus came into the world and, they, and, and the world of darkness didn't comprehend it? Well, he could simply mean that they just, they missed it, like they were just blind to it. Like when I, you know, I'll, I'll tell a, a, a very clever pun and, and, and some of you just, just sails by because you're like, oh, I didn't, Comprehend it. Somebody told me, I said that in the first service, they go, it wasn't because we didn't comprehend it. So I'm just going <laughs> to, let me just imagine that that's why you didn't laugh. So it could be that the world just didn't get it when he was here, but it could very well mean that, that darkness did not overpower Christ. Because really, as you read the Gospel of John, darkness is doing its best to overpower Christ. And the whole gospel story from his birth, right? The Herod's killing babies and Satan's trying to tempt him to, to sin and Peter's going, you're not going to die and, and all the powers of hell are coming against him. But yet Jesus Christ sheds them all aside, dies on the cross and victoriously comes out of the grave and says, now I have the keys. The darkness of this world did not overpower Christ. Maybe John meant both. But in keeping in line with all of the gospel writers, like a good movie, John, John takes us back and we're back in the eternity past. Ooh, seeing the star slung into space by Jesus. And now he takes us to, 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 a, to a, a man named John the Baptist. And we're at the river seeing John preaching and testifying about Christ. Because all of the gospel writers, when they tell the story of the gospel, they always start with John the Baptist. Really interesting. Even in the book of Acts, you've heard about the baptism of Jesus and John. And so John takes us to John the Baptist just for a, a brief glimpse. He doesn't tell us about his birth and childhood. He doesn't tell us about his baptism. He just wants us to know one thing about John the Baptist. He says in verse 6, there came a man, and actually that's the same word that's translated came into being in verse 3. There came into being a man. He was created, sent from God, whose name was John. 
What did he come for? Verse 7 says, he came for a witness, that he might bear witness of the light. Well, why was he bearing witness of the light? So that all might believe. John had a singular mission, and that was to point people to Jesus Christ so that they would believe in him. But one of the things that theologians have suggested is that there was such a fervor about John the Baptist that some people could not grasp that John was not the man. He was the messenger. And so in a few verses later, John says, I'm not the Christ. And it's been suggested, though not definitely confirmed, that there were people who, even in spite of hearing about Jesus, were rejecting that and were deifying John the Baptist as the real Messiah. And so perhaps the Gospel of John is trying to to quickly guide us away from that. He was not the Messiah. So verse 8 says, he was not the light. So let's get this clear. He was not Messiah, but he came that he might bear witness of the light. And so now John zooms the camera back to the manger. And now we're back at at the birth of Christ. And and he says in verse 9, there, not John the Baptist, but there in that manger was the true light. Now, notice this next phrase. It says, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Leave leave that verse, the the verse that was there, verse 9. Coming into the world, he enlightens every man. Now, that's a strange, strange verse. In what sense did Jesus Christ enlighten every man when he came into the world? Like, the Bible says, shepherds saw the bright lights, but the whole world didn't go, dang, what was that? Jesus must have just come. So that's a profound verse because that phrase enlightens every man. Probably, my suggestion is it's not supposed to go with coming into the world. It's supposed to be talking about, that was the true light which enlightens every man who came into the world. So how did Jesus enlighten every man? Well, if he created us, the Bible teaches that God has placed within all of humanity, atheists are no exception, Everybody on this planet has an awareness that there is a God, internally and externally. So there's two things that are constantly telling them there's a God. Number one, Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodly people who suppress the truth. Well, how do they suppress the truth? Verse 19 says, for God has made it evident to them within them. So people know there's a God. Even when they press the delete button, I don't, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in God. They know intrinsically, this explains why people all over the world are worshiping something. But even if they, they, they continue to press against that intrinsic awareness that there is a God because Jesus enlightens every man, he also enlightens them by saying, look around at my creation. These stars and moon did not explode into space from a, a silly cluster of catastrophe, but I created them. And so Romans chapter 1 says, the invisible things of God are clearly seen. He enlightens every man. They're clearly seen. So that all of humanity, whether they've ever heard a word of Scripture, the Bible says, they're without excuse to deny the deity of God, to deny our need to submit to our Creator, is not simple ignorance. It's willful disobedience. Because Christ has enlightened every man. But then we come to verse 10, and I want to start this verse by asking you a question. How many of you have a friend that you still keep in touch with from childhood? 
I mean, way back. I, I keep in touch with a kid that was born one day after me, lived right across the street. He's always kind of looked up to me because I've had an extra day on the earth, so I got a little more wisdom, so I can follow me, right? But, but I want you to imagine that you lived in Nazareth and you grew up with Jesus. As best we know from the scriptures, Jesus never did a miracle till he was baptized and the Holy Spirit came to indwell. Not that he couldn't have, but he didn't. So in, in many respects, Jesus was just a normal kid, a good guy. Way more, he, the dude was righteous. I mean, he was a holy man. I mean, John the Baptist, his cousin's like, dude, you should baptize me. So he was godly, but he wasn't indicating his divinity. And I want you to imagine that when you turn 30, your childhood friend says to you, you know, I've never told you this, but I'm God. In fact, I created all things. I was with the Father from the beginning. I created you. Well, you, you know what the next phone call would be, right? <laughs> Laura Bucks, do you have a bed available? Larry's off his meds again, right? But yet this is exactly what Christ did in that he began to testify of his deity. And that was an enormous, like, what are you talking about? This is Joe's kid. He's not God. And so in his mercy and his compassion to draw us to himself, Jesus says, if you won't believe my words, he says, believe on account of my works. He says, yeah, every Tom, Dick, and Harry can claim to be God. He says, but you see any of them doing this on water? You see any of them raising the dead? You see any of them feeding 5,000 from a few loaves? You see, the signs and miracles of Christ were designed to point us to his deity. And so John tells us, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world didn't know him. And you go... Well, is it their fault? I mean, I would freak out if somebody told me they were God, right? I'd be like, wait, what? But yet this goes back to verse 5. The world did not comprehend him. So as Jesus began to testify that he is God and began to call men to follow him, to believe in him, to forsake this present world, you can understand there's going to be a tension here because either you're in or you're out. And so John wants to clarify what this whole Christmas story is about. It's not so we can all go, oh, little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. It's Christ came on a mission to reveal God and to invite men to come to God through him. So look at the next verse. Not only was he in the world, but the Bible says he came to his own. And the word there in the original language is a neuter plural. It's translated, he came to his own things, right? Because there's only two Real substances, for lack of a better word, there's creator God who's eternal and unique, and then there's creation, right? There's no third category. Either your creator God, the unique and holy set-apart one, there is none like him, and then there's everything else, right? Creation. So when it says he came unto his own things, Christ chose to enter in to this universe that he created. And of all the galaxies in the world... He created man on this little planet. And Psalm 113 says he humbled himself to behold the things in heaven and on earth. And he comes to this earth. But he doesn't just land anywhere. He doesn't just go, oh, looky here, I'm in Nicaragua. He comes to the promised land. Why? Because God had promised the Jews to send them their Messiah. So the next phrase says he came to his own. And then it uses a masculine word. Those who were his own did not receive him. 
And while some have argued it's talking about people, I think it's talking about the Jews. I think John's saying Jesus came to the Jews first. And when you read the story of the life of Jesus, he really did that. In fact, when he first started calling his disciples and sending them out to preach, he goes, don't go anywhere except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And you're like, Jesus, what about Gentiles? The Syrophoenician woman, she goes, Jesus, will you heal my daughter? He says, hey, I can't take the children's bread and give it to dogs. He came to the Jews first. And I've been asked this on numerous occasions. Why didn't the Jews receive Jesus? And I finally got tired of answering that. So about a year ago, I was at the dentist's. And my dentist is Jewish. So I said to him, you know, I'm a pastor and a Bible teacher. And I said, people always ask me, why don't the Jews receive Jesus? I'm tired of answering them. You tell me. And then he went on to tell me why he didn't believe that Christ was the Messiah. And there's a profound mystery to this. And this we're going to come to in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because we're going to learn that the Jews didn't receive Christ because God has hardened them in Romans 9. But we're also going to learn that the Jews didn't receive Christ because of their own personal rejection of him. They refused to submit to the righteousness of God revealed in Christ. But, John says in the next verse, even though the world didn't know him, even though the Jews as a, as a mass didn't receive him, he says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right the authority, this privilege to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. So you go, well, well, wait a minute. What does it mean to receive him? Well, this week I went to one of our congregation's house to pick something up, and they had a big sign on their door, no solicitors, like just, and they were here this morning, so we laughed about it. I said, they won't mind me telling you this because I'm not going to tell you who it is, but if you have that sign on your door, you're probably going to be pastors coming over. Take that sign down. No solicitors. They're going to come all the time, right? And I was almost like, wait, am I a solicitor? I was just coming to get something. I'm not really selling. So I'm, I'm, you're not a bad person, but if you have no solicitors. Well, if you have a no solicitor sign and I'm a solicitor, you did not receive me. You did not embrace me. You did not welcome me. You did not want me. Now, the danger is I often find myself in telling people you need to receive Christ being misunderstood. Let me explain why. Those of you that may have grown up in the Roman Catholic tradition or, or, or you have Roman Catholic friends, when, when the Eucharist is partaken of, the idea of receiving Christ is communicated. The body of Christ. The body of Christ. And so there are people who have said to me, oh yes, I've received Christ. I received him in the Eucharist. And while I understand what they're saying, I want to clarify that that's not what the Bible teaches when the Bible teaches that to become a child of God, you have to receive Christ. He's not talking about the Eucharist. But instead, John describes what it means to receive Christ. He says, even to those who believe in his name. And so John takes the word receive and believe, and he kind of blends them together. But even there, it's really important that we understand that the English word believe is not even beginning to, to communicate what it means to, to believe in the New Testament. Because in English, to believe in something just means to acknowledge that it's a, a reality. It's an intellectual assent. Do you believe in the tooth fairy? Ah, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah. Listen, when the Bible says you become a child of God by believing in Christ, by receiving him, it doesn't mean that you go, yeah, I believe there's a guy named Jesus. 
Not even close. In fact, the Bible says Satan believes in him, James 2, and he trembles. So to believe in the New Testament is to surrender one's will in faith and trust. It's a decision. It's a volitional thing. It's not just like, yeah, I think there was a Jesus. So the Bible says men love darkness. They don't want to believe. But to believe in him is to, is to be willing to follow him and to trust him, to depend on him, to invite him to come into our lives and to become our Lord and Savior. There's a teaching going around in Christianity that you can receive Christ as your Savior, and then it's optional. If someday you want him to be your Lord, um, Jesus doesn't divide that. To receive Christ is to willingly accept him with a willingness to follow him. It's not works, but it's a, it's a decision of the heart. And, and the reason why people aren't flocking to receive Christ isn't because they haven't seen John 3.16. It's because the Bible says this is the condemnation. Men love darkness rather than light, and their deeds are evil, and they won't come to the light. And that's what we need to pray, that God will work in people's hearts to change their affections, to convict them of their sin, so that they will receive Christ as the Son of God who came to be their Savior. And as a Christian, that's a cool verse because you're like, hey, I, I, I did that. I received Christ. And notice here, it doesn't say, and you need to know when you did it. You better be able to know when you did it. Listen, if you grew up in a Christian home, most people don't know when they did it. You don't need to know when you did it. You need to know that you did it and that you're doing it now, right? Don't worry about whether it was on March 2nd or April 4th at Hickory Camp. What matters is, do you trust Christ today? Are you a, a Christ follower are you a believer, confessing him as, as your Lord and Savior, willing to follow him? And if you can say yes to that, then you can say yes to this. You're a child of God. You are a child of God. But John is, is, is again, unafraid to go into deep theology. He says, by the way, I want to tell you how you became a child of God. How many of you remember your first birth? Mine's a little sketchy. I know it was in Camden, and I know the first time I saw my mom was profound. I mean, I love that woman. I just came to tears. I was like, it's you. It's you, right? We kind of learned later what all happened when we became born. Well, that's kind of what happens when you become born again, because from, from our standpoint, we are volitionally receiving Christ. We're choosing to turn and trust him, and we're like, I became saved. I thank the Lord I chose Christ. But John says, but I want you to understand how and why you came to Christ. It wasn't because you were smarter than the average bear. Look at the next verse. He says, those of us who, who did receive him, among the billions of people who didn't receive him, if you did receive him, here's why. Because you were born. This is the new birth. This is the spiritual birth. You were born. But John says, less than any way you think you contributed to your birth... He says it is not of blood. So Jewish people, there's no legal lineage in your, in your blood that makes you uh, have a right to be a child of God. But then he says it's not of the will of the flesh. It's not of the will of man. In other words, your awakening and your spiritual regeneration was not due to anything you did, even your decision. Paul said it this way. He said... Even while we were dead in our sins, because of his great love for us, God made us alive. And so those of us who are Christians, and we've received Christ, it's because God made us alive. 
He caused the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ to shine in our hearts, and we get it, and we celebrate it. Now, for some of you, you're like, I don't believe that. I think I just, I just chose Christ. He didn't choose me first, and I'm okay. You, you know, don't, don't take my word for it, but I think the Bible is pretty clear that our salvation is entirely by the working of the grace of God, that even the, the willingness to receive Christ is because God enabled you. He made you alive. He opened your eyes. And he came and he called you to himself. And that truth is not designed to confuse you, to confound you, but to comfort you that you are a dearly beloved child of God who for purposes known only to the gracious, undeserving love of God, he called you to himself and you're his child. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. And John says, so celebrate that. Christmas is how you became a child of God. But then John says, let me just sum it up real quick in verse 14. He didn't say in verse 14, I'm saying that, obviously. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We call this the incarnation. God the Son, Jesus Christ, became human, took on human flesh. And he still is a man. Jesus, for all eternity now, will be a man but he's also fully God. And he's the only way that you'll ever get to God. It's not through the priest. It's not through the Pope. It's not through Mary. It's not through meditation. It's not through religion or good works. The Bible says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, the God-man, who came to reveal the glory of God. So just before we close in song, I want to give you a couple things to think about as we enter into the Christmas season. First of all, as you get those cards and you see little baby Jesus there and you're sitting around with your family, rejoice. Rejoice that God revealed himself to you through Christ. Pray that we never lose the wonder of the revelation of Jesus Christ to us, that, that this light, I hope waves of glory are shining out from Christ into your heart this morning. And rejoice that Christ came into this dark world. Why? Not because we deserved it, but he came to bring us to himself, to make us his children, to, to bring us life and light. And you have that now. You're not going to get life. You have eternal life if you're a believer. You know God. The Bible says the Son of God came and gave us understanding that we might know him. And this is eternal life, to know Jesus Christ. So rejoice and teach your children that and celebrate that. But secondly, because we know God, you and I need to continually be reminded that we need to resist darkness and resist this world. This world is not neutral. This world is wicked. This world is dark. This world is, is, is dominated by Satan's presence. And most of the people on this planet are in rebellion against God. Even your very nice religious neighbor who's not saved. And so the Bible tells us, you are in the world, but you're not of the world. So don't love the world. Don't love the things of this world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's not from the Father, that's from the world. And this world is passing away. So remind yourself that, that we're in a battle for the souls of men, for the souls of our children. We're called by God to be both religious. James says, this is true religion, helping widows and orphans. But keep yourself unstained by the world. So I want to encourage you to resist this system of people that just leave God out. Christmas is in shambles in America. Because we live in a dark world. And instead of sitting around going, oh, I'm just a loser. Why are my family such jerks? We're called, Philippians 2 says, to be a light 
in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So if you live with a bunch of pagans in your home, God put you there as a light to shine Christ. So, so resist personal sin. Every time we sin, the Bible says we're in darkness. And we need to confess that and walk in the light as the blood of Jesus cleanses us. But third, God has chosen to reveal Christ now through us. The word became flesh. He dwelled among us. Now God dwells in us through the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So you and I have the opportunity to reveal the presence and glory of Christ by the way we live, by the way you treat your wife, by the way you treat people at work, the way you treat your neighbor, the way you treat your kids. The Bible says your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, my hands, my heart, my mind, my mouth. I'm called to glorify God, to reveal God through my life. And, and so you're on a mission as you go home this week. There's no accidents. You have divine appointments to reveal the presence of Christ. And then finally, if you're here this morning, I want to urge you to receive Christ. I, I don't get it. For some of you, you come week after week, and you know what you need to do. And you're like, I don't know if I want to do that. I'll do it when I get older. Or what will my friends think? What good is it to gain the world and lose your soul? If you've never received Christ, I urge you. The best you know how, right there in your seat, to say, Lord Jesus, I don't know all of what it means, but I believe you're the son of God who died and rose again, and I receive you the best I know how I believe in you, and I want to come to the light and be cleansed from my sin and follow you the rest of my life. I urge you to do that, and if you have done that, maybe just recently, rejoice in that. You don't have to keep doing that over and over again. You're a child of God now. But Christmas is such a wonderful thing. Christ came to the world. We can't leave without singing about it. So let's pray. And as I'm praying, Benjamin's going to come, and we're going to sing joy to the world. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. We rejoice in our salvation. Help us to resist this dark world, just like Christ did. And help us to reveal the presence of Christ. And if there's anyone here who has not received Christ, right now in your seat, just say to the Lord, Jesus, I do believe. I do receive you as my Lord and Savior. I do trust you and want to follow you. And if you do that, let one of us know before you leave. Just see me at the door. I'll give you a booklet, and we'll pray that God will reveal himself to you. Thank you so much. God bless you in Jesus' name. Amen.